Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Isaiah, the seventh chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 16. Hear now God's Word. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Joshub, your son, to the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will, not, uh, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. It is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If we were simply reading through the book of Isaiah and we came to this passage, it is highly unlikely that we would immediately recognize that this was an Advent text. Verse 14 is familiar because our New Testament reading from Matthew 1 uh, sheds light on that, but the rest of it is not all that familiar. The nature of prophecy is that it often has an immediate or near fulfillment, and this is referred to as double or dual fulfillment. So there's a first, and then there is a uh, then later a second uh, to the prophecy, a first fulfillment, and later a second. And that second fulfillment is usually uh, more, is more full and literal. And this helps us to see the unity of Scripture, and it emphasizes God's sovereign control over events. So he, he speaks a prophecy, and it's going to happen soon, and then it also happens again in a bigger way later. Isaiah and, uh, 7 and Matthew 1 are good examples of double fulfillment. So the events of this story take place in about 733 B.C. 
King Ahaz became king at age 20, and he reigned over Judah for 16 years. Remember, Israel is now divided into the two kingdoms, and he's reigning over Judah. He does that for 16 years. He sets up idols and images of foreign gods. He committed abominations by worshiping these gods. He even worshiped the god of Molech, Molech and sacrificed his children. So he had proven himself to be a disobedient and an idolatrous king, and he had led the southern kingdom down the same path. And for this reason, God had passed judgment upon Ahaz and upon Judah. So you got the picture? Ahaz, the evil king, Judah, the people he's ruling over, they've been unfaithful to the Lord, and God has brought judgment. In Isaiah 7... Two unlikely allies, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria had joined forces to fend off an attack by the rising uh, power of Assyria, which was rapidly expanding its territory. And Judah had refused to join their alliance and was seeking to have a treaty instead with Assyria. They were putting their money on Assyria, winning that contest. Now, the combined armies of Israel and Syria have now, in this story, besieged, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem during the reign of Ahaz. This unfaithful Ahaz, we're told, was shaking in his boots. Verse 2, so his his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. That's a description of how... They're viewing their current circumstances. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to reassure his frightened people. Take heed, verse 4, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, is how he describes them, these two stubs, these two kings of Israel and Syria, You can ignore their threats because what they're wanting to do is not going to happen. God said in verses 6 and 7, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. So you see, the question for King Ahaz and for the people of Judah, and really the question for us as well, is in whom will you put your trust in this time of international strife and domestic danger? Will it be in the walls of Jerusalem? Will it be your shaky alliance with Assyria? Will it be your political skill or your military might? Or will it be Yahweh? your covenant God, who has shown himself faithful for centuries, and now he is promising to save you. Verse 9, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. This is an issue of faith. Believing God, believing what he said, trusting in his word. And so I ask you this morning, are you like Ahaz and Judah, shaking in your boots because the enemy has surrounded you? Now, maybe that's a local enemy. Maybe that's some problem you're going through, but maybe it's what you see on the news. Maybe you're worried about all the big cabals in the world. 
and what they're going to do to you and do to us. Because if you don't believe, neither will you be established. John Calvin illustrated this. He said, this may be made plain by a comparison. A man may happen to be drowned in a small stream, and yet, though he had fallen into the open sea, if he had got hold of a plank, he might have been rescued and brought on shore. In like manner, the slightest calamities will overwhelm us if we are deprived of God's favor But if we relied on the word of God, we might come out of the heaviest calamity safe and uninjured. In this passage, we must not lose sight of the way that God fulfills uh, his purposes despite the sinfulness of men. That's good news for us. And here's a prime example. You couldn't get much worse than Ahaz. He worshipped Baal. Uh, He even had, again, sacrificed his children to Moloch, and he had nothing to do with the God of his fathers, and as a result, Judah is paying the price, his kingdom. Ahaz was still as evil as ever, but it was time for God to show mercy to the remainder of Judah. And so this frightening scenario is uh, the context in which the promise of a virgin giving birth to a son is given. All is lost. All looks like everything is over. A son who will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God was promising to do what appeared to be impossible, and that is destroy the powerful northern coalition. Yahweh offered to give them a reassuring sign to strengthen their faith. Verses 10 and 11, Moreover, Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from from Yahweh your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. You can ask for a little sign. You can ask for a big sign. Tell me what you want. Well, Ahaz didn't believe, uh, believe that God was with him, and so he refused to ask God for a sign, and he excused his unbelief with a little piety, Well, I don't want to put God to the test. Well, perhaps Ahaz recognized that if he named a sign and Yahweh performs the sign, then he will have to acknowledge Yahweh's power and ally himself with God. This invitation by God, then, is as much a test as it was an invitation. By inviting Ahaz to name a sign, Yahweh is putting him in a position where he has to show his true colors, faith to Yahweh or not. And here we see the Lord taking the initiative in the salvation of his covenant people. It's the doctrine of election. He chose me before I chose him. God is being gracious in spite of his people, not because of his people And because Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign, God just said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a sign anyway. Verses 13 and 14, but then he said, here now, O house of David, is uh, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now, there's been significant controversy over the, uh, the word virgin here. In the Hebrew, it is the word uh, Alma. Simply, it simply means a young woman who is about to be married, and it doesn't specifically refer to the state of her virginity. However, the Latin version of this text in the Septuagint uses the word Parthenos, which definitely means a young virgin. So perhaps the folks who translated the Old Testament got it wrong, right? They just used the wrong Greek word. But here's most important. Here's how we settle this issue. This is certainly how Matthew, under the divine and infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood Isaiah 7.14 when he applied it to Mary and Joseph. In keeping with our understanding of the double fulfillment of prophecy, it is true that this is a promise for Ahaz and his people around 734 B.C. Isaiah was talking about a young woman in his time, perhaps Ahaz's young wife, or could be Isaiah's wife. She would give birth to a son, and that son would be proof that God is indeed with his people, even in a terrible time like this. And thus he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. For Isaiah, Ahaz, and the people of Judah, who were currently in very, a very distressed situation, the sign was almost immediate. This child is the immediate fulfillment of the Emmanuel promise. And during the time of impending attack of those two great armies of Israel and Syria the, came the birth of this child, And it would be proof to all of Judah, including Ahaz, that God is, in fact, with them. But back to Matthew 1. The second and most complete fulfillment would come with the birth of the Messiah in the fullness of time. This Parthenos, this young virgin, that's the word Matthew used under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets the Alma, the the Hebrew word, giving the deeper meaning of that ancient promise. In other words, we have an inspired, infallible commentary on Isaiah 7 given to us in Matthew 1. Even as that child in 734 B.C. proved that God was with his embattled people, the child born to Mary demonstrates that God is always with his people and he will save them from their sins which is a bigger enemy to you than Syria or anything else. Think of the biggest threat you can think of right now in the whole world. Your sins are a bigger threat than that, way bigger. And if they're not dealt with, it won't matter about all the other things. Matthew connects the sign of Emmanuel from Isaiah 7.14 to the virgin birth of Jesus, and in doing so, he reinforces the virgin birth of Jesus for us. It is in the context of the angel telling Joseph that Mary is carrying a supernaturally conceived child and that she is still a virgin. So Matthew sees the final and greater fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy, and he doesn't hesitate to explain it to us. Matthew demonstrates to us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He does this by proving two things at the beginning of his gospel. 
First, Jesus is the fulfillment of the eternal king or or, or Messiah who sits forever on the Davidic throne, and he does this by tracing the genealogy of Jesus. Second, that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. So the rest of our, our Isaiah's text seems to describe what happened in relation to this child who was born in the days of Ahaz. Verse 16, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, that's Syria and Israel, will be forsaken by both of her kings. So this ver- uh, these verses are telling us that before the child goes on solid food, while he's still eating curds and honey, the northern alliance will be laid waste. And that's exactly what happened when this child was somewhere around two years old. The two kings are Rezin and Pekah. And as already stated, Ahaz is in dread of them because they have attacked Jerusalem once and they can be expected to do so again. Isaiah is reassuring Ahaz that within the next 13 years, Yahweh will deal with Rezin and Pekah so that they no longer pose a threat. This, in fact, happened. Aram was destroyed three years later, and Assyria defeated Israel and sent its people into exile 13 years later. Even at the darkest moment for Jerusalem, God is still with the nation, and he has a plan to save them out of a disaster so great that it would effectively have ended the line of David. But that couldn't happen, right? Because that's not all that God had in mind. And that's true for us. We see things happening immediately and around us, but God has greater purposes that he's working out, things we don't even see yet. Indeed, the way Matthew uses this prophecy is very instructive for how we deal with all of God's promises. Matthew says that the virgin birth of Jesus fulfilled the word of the prophet. That is, he filled it out. He filled it up. He made it bigger, more glorious. You never know the full meaning of God's promises until you see them in the light of Christ. And as as the Apostle Paul put it, all the promises of God in Christ are amen. So be it. While Ahaz and Isaiah couldn't see Christ in the original promise, God had a bigger purpose in mind and he was always pointing ahead to the grand fulfillment in Christ. In a time of great fear, God gave his Old Testament people a simple sign to assure them that their God was with them even though Jerusalem was surrounded and their enemies seemed to be invincible. In in another time of international turmoil and international danger, God gave his New Testament people an even greater sign to assure them that God was with them even though Rome seemed Almighty. We know how that story ends, right? We too can see what appears to be powerful forces arrayed against the church, even today. Against God's people. Against us. We are, so I ask the question are we shaking in our boots like Ahaz? 
Oh no! Did you see the latest? I've connected three more dots. It's all over. Henny penny. Romans 8, 31 and 32. Is this a platitude or is this the truth? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who died, he, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely with him give us all things? The sign of Emmanuel still stands for us today in a time of fear when leaders jockey for power and enemies are at the gates and we don't know who to trust. Jesus promised his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us to the end of the age. And when it's hard to trust God in impossible situations, let us look to the sign of a virgin who gave birth to a son who was in every sense of the word, Emmanuel, God with us. Even Mary thought it was impossible. We read in Luke chapter 1, 34 through 38, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who, call, who, who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me. This is, perfect. This is the proper response. She said, uh, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That was it. That's all we needed to hear. During Advent, we recall God's ancient promises and the fulfillment of those promises. And unlike the first Emmanuel child that was born in the days of Ahaz, a child who lived and died, we have the true Emmanuel who lives and reigns forever. He is always with us. During Advent, we're used to hearing about the sign of Emmanuel and that the virgin will conceive a child, but it is clear that Matthew intended his readers to remember the context of Isaiah 7:14, when he quoted it as a fulfillment of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Again, this is the story which Matthew wants us to remember when he says, all of this was fulfilled. A time when God's people were surrounded by enemies, a time when there seemed to be no way out, He is recalling the time, again, when Judah was unfaithful and not looking to God for protection, and yet God was still with them and would protect them because of his promise to David. Advent is the time when we remember the promises of God, especially the promise that he is with us. And if he is with us, not one can stand against us. This week, uh, or just a couple of days ago, I read... Uh, an article, an essay posted by Pastor Douglas Wilson. And while he wasn't specifically talking about this text or uh, even necessarily Advent, uh, 
a portion of this that I want to read to you seems a great ending for this sermon. I think it speaks to this victory that we have by having God with us. He says, uh, the white rich ruled Narnia for a hundred years, always winter and never Christmas. She had a lot of power and everything seemed hopeless, beyond hopeless. Fighting her was futile. The way it was yesterday will have to be the way it will necessarily be tomorrow. Everything is grim and dark and gray and stripped, fading off into bleak in every direction, and that means we might as well give up, right? Not a bit of it. It actually means that God is not a lousy author. He loves to write nail biters, and his nail biters are always better than the ones we write. When we write a cliffhanger, this makes the reader stay up late, frantically flipping pages and perhaps even peeking at the last pages to see if everybody is still alive. But when God writes one, the readers go through that experience, whoever they are. And the characters, that would be us, experience the same thing. Are we even going to make it? Or as Chesterton once said, the one taste of paradise on earth is to fight in a losing cause and then not lose. And here is Chesterton another time. When you ask yourself what kind of world your grandchildren are going to grow up in, the answer is they're going to grow up in the same kind of world that you did. The world is fallen and broken, and there are dangers and there are dragons to fight, but every detail of every battle is written by the finger of God. You say that big tech has algorithms that track every keystroke. But that is an omniscience made out of three feet of brown wrapping paper after it's been wadded up. God is the omniscient one. God is the one who knows every blink of every eye, the position and velocity of all the atoms in every one of Jupiter's moons, the flight path of every meadowlark, the number of seconds that Joe Biden has left on the earth, and how many hairs there are on the back of that stray yellow dog. What about their aspirations to omnipotence? Our globalists, our pretenders to the throne, our vaunted lords of the earth are like a child in a plastic car that is part of a ride at the county fair. The steering wheel is there, and the child gets to turn it this way and that and can feel very grown-up and self-important but the car still rides on the rails appointed. Hamlet spoke a wisdom that is far beyond the petulant child when he said, There's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough hew them how he will. God is the Almighty One. And He is the only Almighty One. It does not matter how many impudent sinners puff out their chest and announce their plans to throw snowballs at the sun or rocks at the moon. The one in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. Now, if he holds them in derision, and we are his sons and daughters, shouldn't we laugh also? 
Dutiful children always laugh when their father laughs. These aspirational deities can put cameras in every intersection, and they can record every phone conversation, and they can listen in to casual conversations when nobody was on the phone and target you with ads accordingly. And they can shadow ban anyone who started to tweet anything that made sense. They can do all of that. They can be as creepy as they want to be, which is pretty creepy. But at the end of the day, they still don't have what it takes. And they never will have what it takes. These are not gods. They are not the future. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the Ancient of Days, the Everlasting Father, and your promises are certain, true, and indeed everlasting. Your powerful word, which goes forth from your mouth, shall not return to you void, but shall accomplish whatever you please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which you sent it. Help us, O Lord, to stand on your promises in the midst of every storm, in the face of every enemy, and to never waver. Our security is always in you, regardless of the circumstances, for you are with us. Emmanuel has given us eternal life, and we shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch us out of his hand. Indeed, he is the Prince of Peace, and we pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to read a passage from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, as we prepare to come to the table and tying this in with what we've just spoken about from Isaiah 7. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So the woman here represents the faithful remnant of Israel who was to give birth to the Christ, but who, di- but who did so in travail and pain. John sees a fiery red dragon who is identified in verse 9, which we didn't read, but verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And so this dragon had the combined characteristics of all the beasts in Daniel's Daniel's vision, showing how each pagan empire was simply Satan in a new guise. This was no less true of Satan's Roman period, during which he sought to devour the young Christ through the agency of Herod the Great. Satan had drawn a third of the angels into his rebellion against God, dragging him down to the earth with him. His intent was to kill Christ as soon as he was born, but the attempt, of course, was unsuccessful. In this passage, the narrative jumps from Christ's birth to his ascension. 
The fact that this child is Christ is confirmed by the fact that the child was destined to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, a reference to Psalm 2. Did you get that? Advent points us to the very child who was promised by God through the prophet Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us, and he has been with us ever since. For he himself, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, for he himself has said, that is Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Thank you for speaking so clear and loud and for revealing yourself to us. Indeed, you are faithful, though we are not. You spoke to us in our weakness, and now the joy of the Lord is our strength, for we now rely upon your great power. We are comforted by the fact that there are no promises made by you that will not be performed. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Your word is unalterable, your your promises are sure, and your power is invincible. In this truth, we find our hope, our assurance, and our strength. You promised us a Savior, and that Savior came. By your purpose and power, you sent your Son into the world. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By your power, you made us. By your power, you redeemed us and gave us new hearts. And by your power, you shall raise us from the dead, where we will see our Lord in all his majestic glory and live and reign with him forever. Bless now this Lord's day for rest and fellowship and delight. Bless our meal and our conversation. And we thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the peoples. Amen.